The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. If you have a Bible, we are going to be in the book of Genesis, um, chapter 6 through 9 this morning. We are, uh, uh, I'm going to read through selections of it, so we're not going to read it up front, but um, this is about the great flood uh, that Noah survives, and so we have been going through the series on all things new, and uh, just really grateful that we get to look at this story together and see what God has for us in it. Um, if we haven't had a chance to meet, by the way, my name is Jacob. It's really a pleasure to be with you this morning. One heads up on how we do sermons here. Uh, you will see on all the slides a Q&A number. Um, that comes to my phone. If you have any questions during the sermon, uh, I will say related to the sermon, um, feel free to text me, and then we do like a Q&A, like answer uh, after the sermon. And we just do the, Q- the number so that as a little bit, if you feel awkward asking a question in a large group context, obviously I get paid to talk in front of people on a regular basis. It's not a big deal to me, but I realize that for most people, that's not like a comfortable experience. So you can text. I'd be happy to answer those questions. Um, if you have questions about like Adam and Eve's belly button, not going to deal with that this morning. But if it has something to do with Noah and the flood, we'll talk about that for the sermon. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get looking at this passage together. Uh, God, we are grateful that you have gathered us together in our own little miniature ark here uh, to experience your mercy and your kindness. And so I pray that as we explore this story of the flood that amidst the chaos of life, that we would experience how good and faithful and merciful you are to us. And so we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure, uh, first of all, I assume that everybody's fr- at least heard about the story of the flood, where God floods the whole world, you've got the ark, it's a chaotic moment, and I'm sure that many of us have experiences of chaos in one way or another in our lives. Um, we have four boys, and so we just have like regular... <laughs> chaos on a regular basis. Uh, for example, some, last night somebody um, had taken a box of flour upstairs, and then as it was being transported downstairs, it had somehow not only been opened, but then was dropped down the stairs. <laughs> and there was flour all down the stairs. Um, that is maybe like a Diet Coke version of chaos, right? It, it's fairly light, easy to fix, no big deal. Uh, some of us have chaos that comes in, and it's it changes our entire life. A wreck that either you know, destroys our car and our way to get to work, somebody who passes away, um, loads of things that cause chaos in our lives. We're fairly familiar with these uninvited guests of chaos. They throw disorder into everything, not exactly what we were hoping for when we wake up in the morning. Chaos is inevitable. Um, and it is something that throws us into a whirlwind. We are here in Genesis 6 through 9 this morning because as we've looked through the All Things New series, we've seen at the very beginning God created everything good and right and beautiful and whole. It was really good. God loved it. And not only did he love it, but then he made humans to, do, to rule over it and to image him amidst all of this good stuff. And then not only that, God was going to take up shop and live with us. And then last week, Peter led us through seeing how sin comes in and messes the whole thing up. And here we have, as we're looking through this whole series of creation, decreation, here we arrive at what happens when you start putting water into the oil tank. (laughs) You 
what happens when you put the wrong things into the world the way it's designed, and things start to go awry very quickly. So what I'm going to say here is we're going to preach through Genesis starting in January next year. So if you have specific questions, there's a lot of things here in these chapters that we're just not going to get into right now because we're kind of doing an overview sweep. Like we'll, we'll be in Genesis for like, I think this week and next week, and then we're going to kind of take off um, into other parts of the Bible. But uh, I know that people tend to get kind of bent out of shape about like when did the flood happen? Was it a global flood? Flood Was it a regional flood? You know, when did this happen in terms of like historical events and the geological record? Um, those are great questions. We can like bump all of that until January or February. What we're trying to do this morning is to look at the story and see, okay, amidst all of the chaos of what sin causes, how does God respond and what does that mean for our lives, right? Things have gotten terribly bad. Here's kind of the main idea of what's going on in, this, in the Genesis 6 or 7. Things have gotten terribly bad and God must do something about it, right? He must bring a chaotic judgment to bring clarity about who he is and what the world is about. But for us, when we think about our lives in chaos, what this story provides for us is a bit of a, a template for understanding when chaos arrives at your door this week, when chaos arrives in our lives, what do we do? Like, I don't think many of us are going to have a flood come. <laughs> The story ends and promises that we're not going to get flooded, I guess. But the main idea is what chaos is coming and what will we do? What happens in our own hearts? So here's the main idea of this, these six to nine chapters this is the main point, and we're going to unpack this. We see through the flood story, God's mercy, mercy through the chaos of the world allows us, uh, always leads us to trust in his faithfulness. God's mercy, mercy, why do I keep mercy? Like, what's going on with that? God's mercy through the chaos of the world always leads us to trust in his faithfulness. Right? Chaos is surprising, but what's more surprising in this story is God's place amidst the flood. That's, the, that's what's going on here. So, what I want to do is I want to start us into kind of uh, three aspects of these chapters that we're going to see. How does God's mercy reshape how we experience the chaos of life? So God's mercy and judgment is the first category that we're going to look at. I'm going to get to reading some passages here, but what I want to do before I get to that, I know that most of us are fairly familiar with the flood story, right? Flood story, you know, I, I don't know if you guys grew up with My mom loved Noah. Like, I don't know what it was, but that Noah was her jam. And we had pictures of Noah and the ark all over our house. Like we had, you know, the picturesque Hallmark stuff with like all like the animals that all like clearly like, you know, they were like, you know, there's the lion and the lioness, I guess. Is that what they're, I'm not a, I'm not a botanist. What do I know about any of this stuff? They're all like, you know, they're clearly like in love. They've gone to prom together and there they are walking into the ark and, and Noah's just kind of like, hey guys, welcome to the ark. You know, like we've got a whole bunch of ark, ark pictures but to set the stage for understanding what's going on in the flood story, I just want to kind of tell you a little bit about all these other flood stories that happen, that, that are in all the religions around Israel at the time. So it's called the ancient Near East. And if you're familiar with the flood story, there are dozens of other flood stories from that region of the world and globally, right? People in North America had flood stories about the ancient world. So everybody's got a story one way or the other. In the ancient Near East, there's about three or four different ones from the 
from the Babylonian people nearby, and their flood story generally goes something like this. People are horrible. <laughs> the gods are really annoyed about how horrible people are, and so their, their solution is, you know what, guys? Let's just, let's just get rid of all of them. And there's even some stories where the gods are so petty, they're like, you know what? These people made really good cities, and they care more about themselves than us. Let's get rid of them because they're not thinking about us. It's like this like self-pitying like, story. And so the gods get together and they say, okay, we're going to destroy the earth, but we're going to have a secret pact. Nobody can tell, the, tell humanity that the flood is coming. Everybody wink, wink, nod, nod, pinky swear. We're not going to tell the humans. Okay. And then one of the gods is kind of like, well, I kind of like the people. Like, I don't think they're that bad. And then he goes and finds some creative way to kind of like speak through the reeds or whatever to people like, hey, there's a flood coming. And so then that person becomes the hero of the story, and he gets told, all right, I want you to build a, a, an ark out of your house. So disassemble your house, <laughs> build a boat, build a boat out of your house, and, um, and then hopefully you survive. And then on the other side of the flood, the gods are kind of like, hey, these people survived. How did that happen? Oh, my gosh, we had a snitch among us. Well, snitches get stitches, you know, that sort of thing. Like, oh, no. Actually, we're going to tolerate this, you know, no big deal. People are okay. We're just going to have to live with this reality. And that's generally like this, the kind of overview of how like these pagan stories go around Israel. The idea being the gods do not like humanity. The gods want to utterly destroy humanity and that gods have to then lie and deceive in order to save humanity. You, you picking up on that kind of like, that's the trajectory of all of their flood stories. When we get to Genesis 6 back in, in February, March, I'll go into a little bit more detail about that. So with that in mind, here, that kind of background noise of what the flood story should be to Israel, hear now God's version of the flood story. Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now we're going to jump down to verse 11. The earth, now the earth was corrupted in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh was corrupted their way on the earth. And God said, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them from the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. Cover it inside and out with pitch. And he gives them more instructions on how to build the ark. And then down to verse 17. For behold, I am bringing a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all the flesh in which the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife, and your sons' wives with you, and everything and every living thing of all flesh shall be shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of all the birds according to their kinds, and the animals according to their kinds, and every creeping thing in the ground according to its kind, two of every sort 
shall come to you to keep them alive. Now, I realize that that's a long section of Scripture, but you can begin to feel there's a tone and difference between this pagan story and the biblical story. Do you notice what the biblical story has? God is both taking sin seriously, right? Sin, sin is serious. But then God is proactive in saying, I am grieved over the effect of sin in this world. I'm grieved over how it's, a cre- how it's uh, affected my creation. I'm grieved over what has happened, but I don't want to utterly destroy everything. I want to bring judgment upon sin, but I don't want to utterly destroy everything. I want to save a remnant, save humanity from itself. You notice that rather than in the pagan story, the gods are trying to like outdo each other like behind their back and all that stuff. God is out front saying, I'm going to take care of this. God is the primary actor in the midst of his judgment to bring mercy to his people. You notice that's, that's, that's kind of what's going on here is that God is the main actor to both deal with sin and save from sin. <laughs> you notice God is the one pursuing them. God is the main actor, right? And you'll notice that I, just, I, found, I find this statement up in the, uh, verse 6 of chapter 6. It grieved him to his heart. You get annoyed with people that you don't know on the street when they cut you off in traffic. Because you just don't know them. You don't care. Why do they drive like that? That sort of thing. But you get grieved over people who do bad things that you love. You, when you love people, you're grieved when they make horrible decisions. You grieve over the people in creation that you love. And that's what God is doing here, right? He's saying he saw the earth first. Ian. Sit down. <laughs> We're all in this together, guys, right? <laughs> God saw the earth. He sees it. He loves it. But he intends to save humanity. And you'll notice in verse 17 of chapter 7, I know that we didn't read this, but Adam or Noah brings in all the animals. He brings them into the ark. And what is it that God does? He doesn't leave Noah to his own devices. He seals him in to save him amidst the floodwaters of judgment that are coming. Now, there's one thing I want to point out here before we kind of move on. Are you guys still tracking? Are we tracking here? I'm getting a little discombobulated here because I'm trying to keep track of everything. But what's going on here, I want to mention something called symbolism. I know that that's a big word and like numbers and numerology in the Bible can kind of get thrown around. But symbolism is when we, use, we there's a reference point for numbers that have meaning to them. So, for example, if somebody were to create a political party and say, these are, we, we're, our party is called the 13 founders, or the 13 patriots, or the 13 stripes, you would know, oh, well, there's something to do with the, found, the founding of America, the 13 original colonies. You could probably guess their political perspective. 13 means something in kind of the American ethos of how we think about things, right? We've just read earlier in Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, and saw how 7 and 3 get used a lot. And you have to remember this story is being told to people who just read Genesis 1 through 2. So seven, they, these numbers mean something. So what I want to point out to you are just some dynamics of this story that help us recognize we've just been saying God judges sin, but he's not destroying humanity utterly in this story, which is his mercy. So I want to just point this out in the story so you see some of the patterns that are going on here. So chapter 7, 
Uh, these verses are not on the screen. I apologize about that. But um, chapter 7, verse 2, you're going to see the number 7 here show up many times in the story. Genesis 7, take with you seven pairs of clean animals, male and female, a pair of the animals that are not clean, and, a, and the male and, the, uh, and his mate. And then verse 3, seven pairs of birds of the heavens. Right? Verse 4, for in seven days I will send rain on the earth. And then in chapter, or verse 10, and after seven days the waters came to flood. And then over in chapter 8, on the other side of the flood. And in the seventh month, on the seventh day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Eret. And then chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 10, and he, Noah, waited another seven days after the, um, the ark had been rested. And then down in verse 12, and he waited another seven days. So you're going to see this pattern of seven. There's something going on here with this use of seven to communicate. God is doing something pure and perfect, but it's echoing the creative acts of Genesis. He's basically saying, we're setting the reset button here on humanity, but we're not utterly destroying it. We are doing something to reset humanity back to what we did in Genesis 1 through 2. Another thing I want to point out here, um, chapter 6, verse 16, you'll notice that the ark itself make a roof of the ark, finish it to a cubit above, and set the door on the ark at its side, make it with a lower, a second, and a third deck. So this ark is designed, why would God call out like, hey, I want there to be three floors on the ark? We remember back in Genesis when God created, created the world, he created the world and said, I have the skies above, I have the earth, and I have the waters beneath. There's a three-tiered system to the world in Genesis 1. Now, that doesn't mean that like, there's like, literally like waters above the earth and all that stuff. It's just a, a picture of how God created the world to say, there's the above, there's your world, and there's the underworld. And he creates the ark to be a little miniature Eden. <laughs> there's the top floor, the mid floor, and the bottom floor. So he's creating a little miniature Eden on the back end of a seven-day creative event. And then the third thing I want to point out here is that he basically re... Um, undoes what he did in Genesis. In Genesis, the pattern is God creates the waters, God brings the land out of the water, he creates animals, and he creates mankind. And then what happens here in Noah's story? He talks to Noah, he brings the animals, he brings the, the ark on the, on the land, and then the waters come and they undo everything. God is basically re, recreating the world through Noah but the important thing to note, see, I'm, I'm giving all these details because what these, these parts in this passage are signaling to Israel, and they're signaling to you that when God brings chaos, he does not bring it to flick us or to get rid of us or because he's annoyed with us. He does it as a way to reset to his intended original design. He's not act out, or out against Israel or you to utterly destroy us. The point is that when God brings judgment, it's merciful to reset who we are, and how we relate to him. His judgment is to decreate the world, but also to renew it and cleanse it. See, we often, when chaos comes into our lives, we feel like, what did I do to deserve this? We feel like there's a stern old man in the sky who just likes taking his laser bolts and throwing them down in our life. 
the story shows us that that image is actually more the pagan image of God than here. God does take sin seriously. And what we're not saying is that when you have chaos come in your life, there's something you need to repent of. That's not the, the direct application. But just simply to say, in this story of Noah's Ark, God is bringing judgment, and yet it is, he is sustaining his people by his love. He takes sin seriously, but he is not out to destroy you. God is grieved over sin. So here's just kind of two parts of this, and then we're just going to move on to the next point. God's love for you is absolutely true. God's the one who initiated this whole thing with Noah and brings all of these moments of judgment into their lives, and yet he is the one who promised to sustain them through the story. He's the one who promised to, to renew them and sustain them because being grieved, he is driven by love amidst the, world, the, the trials that we face. But it also, the second thing, is that it brings clarity for the chaos of sin. Right? When we, we choose and do things that are just like totally stupid and wrong and just like chaotic in our lives, one of the best things that can happen is to have a declaration of that was wrong. Like when we start to say, you know what, doing whatever it was, that being jealous of my neighbors or saying those mean things about my coworkers behind their back, whatever that is, it's almost like a mini judgment because we begin to say like, that was wrong and it stops sin in its tracks. Just like this flood, like humanity was violent towards each other. And when we hear that, we think of kind of something like, I don't know, like gladiator or something like that. Like, going after each other with hatchets or something like that. I mean, maybe that's true, but violence, I think, was emotional, physical, spiritual, across the board. There was just, people were mean to each other. And when we experience that, we need a little miniature like, hey, you know what? Wrong. That was wrong. Stop it. There's a mercy in being able to see clarity about the actions that we do that are wrong that then begins to lead us towards, okay, then what is God renewing in me in the midst of this? So, are we all tracking with this, or am I just kind of like totally, am I losing? Yes, no, we're good? Okay. I want to pick up on one other thread in this, because what is God doing in Noah through the flood? There's another symbolism thing here I want to point out for us, and I'm just going to put this under the, the heading, God's mercy in testing. So, God's mercy in testing, the next slide over. Um, I want to point out six verses. You're going to notice the, the, the term for, the number 40 being used here. You guys, for in seven days I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all the Lord had commanded him. Then this next verse over. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and for 40 nights. And then 7, uh, 717, the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. And then chapter 8, verse 6. And the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. Now, I want to remind you, this story was told to a bunch of people who had just been saved out of Egypt, right? We, the next book over, Exodus, they had just been miraculously delivered out of Egypt. And Moses is penning the story to people. And you have to remember that in their situation, the number 40 had a little bit of an edge to it. What had Noah done when he left the, the, the Pharaoh's house. He was in the desert for 40 years. And then, after they, they leave Egypt, they cross the Red Sea on dry ground, 
they get into the desert, they uh, sin against God, what happens? They're walking the desert for 40 years, right? 40 begins to take on this tone of testing. There's a, there's a refining dynamic in the use of the word of the number 40, right? Not only that, remember Moses, he goes up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. Have you guys ever seen the old Ten Commandments movie, right? Ten Commandments. He's up there for 40 days and 40 nights, and what, comes, what happens during that time? Israel is tested, and they give in to idolatry. So 40 begins to take on this tone of, was it literally 40 days? I just, you know, I don't think that's the point. It probably was, but it's not the point, because the point is that God uses that 40-day period as a note of testing. You remember how long was Jesus in the desert when he was tested by Satan? 40 days. So 40 has a big meaning for testing through the Bible. So you can imagine, I, I, I want to put you in this story. I, first of all, it's hard for us to relate because Noah was like 600 years old. Like, what does that even mean? Like, <laughs> like uh, but Noah, friends, neighbors, probably loads of extended family. He gets on the boat with his wife, his three sons, and their daughters. That's eight people. They get all these animals put onto the boat. They put them in their, like, whatever their stalls are. They get the hay and all that stuff. Then, miraculously, the story tells us that God seals them into the boat. So somehow that, that door is closed. God seals them in, whatever that means. And then it just rains. Unending rain, and it rains. Amidst all of that, you can imagine what Noah and his family is hearing on the outside. Probably the first couple days absolute chaos. Save us. Let us in. You can imagine the trauma of what they're listening to. They're, clo they're cloistered up in this huge boat with all of these animals. God only knows how to take care of all these things. And they are wrestling with all of these questions. The world is being completely undone. What is next? What do we do next? How am I going to provide for my family after this? Will there be any dry land ever? I mean, God said he's going to, but it's been raining for a long time. What's next? How do we get along together? There's eight people on this boat. I mean, you guys have seen Survivor or one of those like reality TV shows. Like things get contentious after a while, right? You start fighting with each other. The internal struggle is, okay, God promised this, but I don't know. I mean, 40 days is a long, I mean, if you guys ever had like the whole like exposure and quarantine for two weeks or something like that, two weeks alone is an eternity. <laughs> 40 days is two and a half of that, or whatever it is, right? It's a long time. You can imagine what is going on through Noah's head, right? Overwhelming experience. He's lost everything, right? The entire, I mean, quite literally. Like some of us feel like I've lost everything in my life, has to get restarted. Quite, I mean, Noah was like the ultimate of having to restart his life, right? Having to restart his life, loss of friends and family and neighbors, bewilderment. Why them? Why were they not on the boat? And why was I? Survivor's guilt too, you know, that sort of dynamic. What's going to happen to me? What's next? Future questions. So what Noah's wrestling with are actually all the questions that we wrestle with in the little miniature chaoses of our own lives, right? You lose your job. You have to restart your life. You lose a friend or family member something like, I don't know, a global pandemic comes into your world, and you're like, 
what, what if, well, all those what ifs, that's what Noah is going through right now. That's the experience of testing. And the point of testing is not that you prove something to God. Noah had already found favor in God's sight. Noah didn't have to do anything to get God's attention or to earn God's attention. God loved Noah because that's the type of God he was. He probably literally just picked Noah up. Like, it was just, there's Noah. He's no different than the rest of the people around him in some ways. But Noah, the point of testing is not so much to prove something to God, but to see something deeply true about ourselves. What will Noah trust in through this flood experience? What's he going to trust in? You know, at the end of the day, he could have jumped off the boat, right? Just get rid of all this stuff. Instead, God had made a promise. Noah trusted that promise. At the end of the day, all that Noah had was God himself. And that's what the testing is to prove to Noah. That God and God in the midst of the boat is enough. That's the point of the testing. is not so that Noah proves to how good he is to God and how great his faith is. It is to say at the end of the day, God, I don't need all of these things that you're taking away from me, but at the end of the day, I must have you. I can only survive this testing. I can only survive this trial. I can only survive this chaos if you are with me. Like that, that, that's the point of why chaos comes in our lives. I'm not saying that it's great when chaos comes in, whatever that chaos is, family members at death, job, whatever that is, whatever the chaos is. But the point will always be are you going to trust in God and trust him for who he is, or are you going to flake out? And if you look at the Psalms, just to give you a little bit of some hope, because if you're just like me, uh, I tend to do the more flake-out side of things, there is a way to flake out towards God <laughs> that's not abandoning God, right? So just, just to clarify, like, I'm not saying like you've got to suck it up and like white-knuckle your faith through this. I'm sure that Noah had some pretty dark days uh, on, that, on that boat, right? But what we need, testing exposes areas, just like it did for Noah, I assume, where we need things that we trust in to be undone, right? Do I, do I, it's good to trust in my family. Is it, it's good to trust in my friends. It's good to trust in my church. It's good to trust in these things. But at the end of the day, I need those priorities undone for me and so that I can be trusting in God alone himself. See, I, I, think, I think this is one of the things that the pandemic has done for us. The pandemic has, in a certain sense, kind of been our own little generational flood, you might say. But the pandemic has, at least in my observation of my own heart and my own life, and then in the people around me, it has exposed what's important for people and for myself, which is often for me in area, areas that I need repentance and faith in. But it, caused, it has caused us all to ask, what do we do to survive uncertain times? Do we isolate, go inward, process this internally? I'm gonna, I don't need anybody else to help me through this. I go inward. What types of assumptions do we make about others? Oh, if somebody's doing this, then da, 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 da. There's a, if you're left to yourself, you begin to kind of fill in the blanks on assumptions about other people. What habits and life choices or thought patterns have you adopted through the pandemic, our own chaos? What habits and patterns have you adopted as a way of managing the stress, right? You can imagine Noah was under 
a profound amount of stress. And it wasn't just trying to keep up with all the animals in the zoo, right? What is it that cause, where do you go, what sort of habits and practices and patterns do you develop to manage the stress? Do you, as a way of managing the chaos of the pandemic, do you categorize others through a risk assessment? Oh, they're pro-vax, they're anti-vax, they're ca- they have this political perspective on COVID, they have that political perspective, and then you begin to judge your sort of love for your neighbors through that sort of grid. That is, that these are the types of things that the pandemic causes us to experience. Okay. All right. One thing I want to comment on before we move on to this, all right? We're pretty home, you know, we're a homegrown type of thing here. You know, you guys are cool. I've got the eyebrows from Shannon over there. All right, we're good. (laughs) Um, Before we move on to the next point, can we throw up this last slide of how God provides through it? Because the testing part is, I think, we can feel that and be like, okay, now we can feel like we've got to prove something to God through this. But I just want you to notice, what is God doing through this story in the midst Noah's testing? It's saying, God is, through these verses, saying, I'm going to judge humanity, right? I do take sin seriously, but I will save you. I will protect you. I will deliver you. I will take pleasure in your faith, right? (laughs) Noah gets to the end of this whole thing, and he takes one of the clean animals, and he offers a sacrifice to God, and God takes pleasure. That's what that verse is mentioning. He takes pleasure in the aroma of of Noah's sacrifice. And then we're going to end on this point here the rainbow in the sky, I will promise to love you, and I do it publicly. This is God providing amidst the testing that Noah's experiencing, which I think, I put those in those frame, that framing of, it of, of God saying this to you, because in the midst of our own testing, we need to know, what is God's posture towards me? Well, you can put yourself in Noah's place through the story and say, in the midst of this testing, whatever the trial is that I'm experiencing, God's going to save me, he's going to protect me, he's going to deliver me, He's going to take pleasure in my weak faith, and he's, going to, he's promised to love me. Let's end with going into this last part here, God's heart and faithfulness. Genesis 8, verse 1, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the living livestock that were with him in the ark. God remembers, right, and then at the end of, the, end of that verse, And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. Does that not call back to the beginning of Genesis where the Spirit hovers over the waters? God is doing a renewing Genesis 1, 1 through 2 act again, but he's doing it with Noah and not utterly destroying him and starting over. He's renewing, not destroying. And then down in chapter, uh, verse 20 of uh, uh, chapter 8, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I take ever uh, again strike down every living creature um, as I've done while the earth remains. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. You see, in the midst of all this, God is saying, basically, this is a one-time thing that is a a story to tell you the, the, the purposes of my heart. And then here we have at the end of this, God is going to get to the rainbow because he's made a promise with Noah.
So what I want to do is I want to read the story of the rainbow, and then we're going to end meditating on that. Are you guys cool? Chapter 9, verse 12. And God said, This is a sign of the covenant that I've made between you and me and you and every living creature that is with you and all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and, and, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and all the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. I'm going to pause there. See, the Hebrew word here for bow, we read this and we think, oh, it's really cool. Like, it says rainbow in the sky. Like, you know, like, there's the main colors in it. You've got the ultraviolet, you, you know, all that stuff. We think it's really pretty. Like, it's a really pretty picture of God's love for us. Here's this rainbow in the sky. The Hebrew word for bow is God's battle bow. In the ancient world, you can imagine, like, when I think of battle bow, I think of, like, the elves in Lord of the Rings or something like that, like these huge bows where they're, like, pulling them back. And, like, there are bows that are set so they can throw an arrow, like, hundreds of yards. Like, these are intended to do damage and to destroy people, which God has just done. Basically, God's saying, this flood is my battle bow, and I have taken this, I've taken this battle bow, and I'm retiring it. He is taking this battle bow, and the rainbow is representing, or is a picture of God taking this bow and setting it up on the wall. Like you can imagine, like in old houses, or maybe you do this in your house. Um, you know, you would p take the you know the rifle from war or the family's rifle, and you put it up on the wall, and like that's the that's the important stuff that keeps us safe that we do damage and battle with. And God is saying, I'm taking my battle bow, and I'm hanging it up. But you'll notice the direction that God is hanging this in. God takes this bow, he hangs it up on the wall in the sky, and which direction is it facing now? It is facing at God's own heart. We have started the story talking about God's heart being grieved for sin and his judgment upon sin. And we end the story by saying, the humanity that has brought sin into this world, the sin that grieves my heart, I will now take my battle plan, I will hang it up, and I will point its arrow right at my own heart. I will bring judgment again. I'm not going to do it like that. But when I do bring judgment, I will execute it at my own heart. That's what this story ends with. It's not just this pretty picture of a rainbow and animals going up into an ark. It is a ferocious story of God's love for us in the midst of the chaos of sin. And he is saying, I will execute judgment, but I'm going to execute it aimed at my own heart, which is the picture of Christ on the cross. Here Christ, who has created all of humanity, walks into the flood of our sin and, and judgment and wreck of our lives, and he takes on the judgment of God in our place. He takes on God's judgment so that when we experience God's pleasure, we experience it with the final act being finished in the final breath of Christ. See, God will point the arrow and it will land in Christ's heart for you. So let's end with 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, 
in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey. And then here we have Noah showing up amidst Christ's sacrifice for our sins. Why is Noah showing up? While the ark was being prepared, in which a few days, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this flood of Noah, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into the heaven and at the right hand of God, with angels and authorities and powers being subjected to him. See, baptism is maybe an odd place to end with application for our sermon, but it has been through all church history stated that the waters of baptisms are the waters of your judgment. They are the waters of judgment that Christ walks through and now makes them the waters that cleanse you before God. Not that they have magical powers, but they appeal to God and say, God, just like Noah, I have nothing to offer, but you have saved me you have executed the judgment that I deserve upon Jesus himself. He lived through the flood of my judgment so that in the midst of the chaos of my life, I can know your presence and faithfulness. So I hope what you see through all this is that God has been the one who's been faithful through the whole story. God has been the one who brings the chaos and yet through the chaos is eager to be faithful to us and help us to trust in him. I pray that as we've been working through this, you see God's mercy through, chaos, mercy through chaos of the world always leads us to trust in his faithfulness. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your goodness to us. I ask you would help us to continue to trust you and to experience your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, I'm going to look at my phone now for questions. <laughs> Not as a way to escape, I promise. Um, so, is it true that throughout the Bible, God purposely and personally sought to destroy individuals and peoples uh, and people groups, right? Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, like Romans 9.22. So would Noah be the identifier for believers and the entire world would be representation of unbelievers? Right, so, yeah, this is true that God, then in terms of the categories of, like broad categories of systematic theology, God, God does determine who is he going to judge, who is he going to save. Those dynamics are in eternity past. Uh, the dynamics of why, goes, why go, God goes out of his way um, to identify specific people. Ian, please stop. Why God purposely goes after individuals and groups is a little bit more complicated than just being that they're sinners. Um, we'll get into this when we get through Genesis. But uh, Genesis 6, at the beginning of Genesis 6, it starts with the mentioning of the Nephilim, and the Nephilim are these like hybrid babies between God's uh, spiritual people and humans. And I know this is a long answer, but whenever God goes after like specific like jihadist type religious judgment, they are always people that are connected to those spiritual beings through the history of Israel. So I know that's like a, a bit of an obscure answer to that, but just to say like the specific 
war that God goes on through the Old Testament is always after these demonic beings and how they've influenced Israel. Um, in broad categories, God does destroy uh, and bring uh, judgment, but uh, the story of the Bible is that those things are reserved for the final judgment. So those things do happen. They happen at the end. The stories in the Old Testament are largely a little bit more involved than just God being angry with people for being sinners. There's a little bit more spiritual dynamics going on with that. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.